Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Lanigan, how are you, mate? I'm good. You? I'm doing all right. I'm alive. That's about as good as we can be right now, isn't it? <laughs> Indeed. Hanging on in. Um, you're in Ireland, right? Yeah. What took you over there? I understand you've obviously got Irish blood running through you. Have you got family over there still, or or what's the occasion for the visit? I'm actually living here at the moment. So, uh, just... Wanted to get out of the States. Did you have to get out as it was all kicking off? Was it just getting too much? Yeah, uh, I mean, I've wanted to to get over here for a long time because my business is primarily in Europe and UK, Ireland. Um, that's where I do most of my touring and that's where my record company is. It just makes sense for me. It's a beautiful country as well, beautiful people. It's probably my favorite in all of Europe. Every time I go over there, the the hospitality, the generosity, the warmth, and usually when bars and stuff are open as usual, the music, like every night of the week, you can go into a tavern and there's just, you know, musicians playing all night. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very livable place, especially for an artist. 
I spoke to David Catching earlier in the week, and he he asked me to send his regards. His exact words were, "Tell Mark I love him." So that's oh, I loved it. <laughs> that's from David to you. He is a sweet man, isn't he? A one of a kind dude. Yeah, he's the best. And I'm also, we have a mutual friend in the form of Joe Cardamone, uh, who I met actually for the first time the day after your tour with him in the UK a couple of years back. And we spent the day at the Columbia Hotel in his room smoking cigarettes, doing one of these chats. And it was one of the most profound and deep and beautiful chats I've ever had. And we, we just instantly made a connection and we've remained in touch since. And I've got a book coming out on Rare Bird uh, in a month, and I've just seen over the last couple of days. Are you and Joe doing something in conjunction with Rare Bird as well? It's the Dark Mark Skeleton Joe project, but is it with Rare Bird? Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, they also uh, are starting to put out records, and that's who our record is going to be with. Fucking A. How does your relationship with Joe start? How did you two get to know each other? I've known Joe since he was a kid. Um, Icarus Line went out opening for my band in the States. And uh, I've just known him ever since. That was probably 20 years ago now. So he was just a, a tyke. <laughs> well, that, that show that I saw at Coco, uh, I'd never seen him perform solo before. And it was so powerful and intense. And he was telling me that he'd obviously lost his, his long-term friend, Alvin, just before that tour. And then had obviously gone out on the road with you and had almost been exercising his, his grief and, you know, all that pain on stage every night. And, I mean, what a wild experience for him. And it must have been nice for him to have been out on the road with you, someone who's an old friend and... I know he had his brother out with him as well, but I mean, what's your memory of that tour? Did you notice that he was going through some pretty wild stuff? Because the shows were oh. ama- the shows were amazing. Yeah, I mean, it was well known that uh, he had just suffered this intense loss, and also that was the first time that he had taken his uh, his act out on tour. So it was, uh, you know. Uh, there's a lot of different things going on for him. He was, uh, you know, just trying to see if if he could uh, pull off the, the one-man show, which, of course, he, he did with, uh, with that excellence. Yeah, he, that, uh, he came out looking like the man he fell to earth. And I was like, all right, this is this is different. And then with all the visuals going on behind him and I mean, the look on your audience's face when he was playing <laughs> was, was quite something to behold. And I love it when art is like that. And it, I think it's getting increasingly rare that you, that you see performances like that. I don't know, maybe I'm going to the wrong shows, but I feel like, you know, those artists that are really almost provoking the audience, um, they're, they're slowly but surely fading away. Yeah, I mean his his thing is records yet, but they're uh, they're really. I mean, he's onto something that I haven't heard before. Anything that I can compare it to is like Kendrick Lamar crossed with suicide. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> What's the nature of your project together? Then is it similar? 
instrumental landscapes and then with you doing your thing over the top and do you write the music together does he bring the music to you and you put vocals on top of it how how has this project come together yeah he, he generates all the music and i write the words and the singing parts but that said it's not like it's not like his uh his solo thing it's also not like icarus line to me it's not like anything either one of us has ever done before and that's what's uh appealing about it yeah it's, it must be nice when you're that far into your career and i know joe's done a lot of stuff as well and produced and worked with a lot of bands as well it must be nice to still have stuff which is which is new and, and which gets you both excited because it is so different to to everything you've done before it's probably important i think for artists to to keep doing that right otherwise you get you get stale don't you yeah i mean that that goes without saying i'm more much more apt to be attracted to something that's uh not like anything i've done before than i am you know something that reminds me of some road i've already gone down I tell you what I've been getting into a lot over lockdown because obviously there's nothing but time on the hands and I've written a book and that's been you know something that's been positive and kept me busy and productive but obviously a lot of downtime as well and I came to him late and I mean sadly I only actually really found out about his work when he passed and I just saw this tidal wave of tributes to him from all of these people that I respect and admire and enjoy the work of talking about Anthony Bourdain um and so I've just been watching all his programs. I bought his book, Kitchen Confidential, and I've just been immersing myself in his his world over the last few months. I gather you two were good friends. I know you and Josh did the theme song to Parts Unknown. Uh, you're obviously in the Seattle episode of that show as well. Um, what was the the connection there, Mark? How did you two meet? Um, I met I met Tony through Josh and. He was just a, a great uh, enthusiast of my work and was really, uh, you know, instrumental in in uh, having me write and just, uh, you know, really um, positive and always uh, kind of pushing me to to do something I hadn't done, which those kind of people are, are sort of rare, um, especially with somebody that you, you, know, you really respect his work. Um, I was a big fan of, of Kitchen Confidential, um, you know, his, his previous shows before I ever met him. So it was, it was kind of a thrill to find out that he was so into my music. And like I said, he was, uh, you know, one of the main catalysts behind my writing as well. Was he the guy? Was he that, you know, kind of gave you that push and encouraged you to get to work on Sing Backwards and Weep? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, he uh, told me I should write a book and I was like, I just, you know, I couldn't bear to make some crappy rock biography. There's so many of those. And I also hadn't talked about that time frame for a reason because I wanted to distance myself from it and have a career in music 
and just not be thought of as, you know, some ex-drug addict, grunge singer who didn't make it. Yeah. And uh, so I never I never would answer questions about that time frame or talk about it because I wanted to, you know, have a career in music. And, and keep moving forward. Exactly. And I'm also somebody who prefers to stay in the here and now pretty much. I don't do a lot of looking backwards. But, you know, by its very nature, that kind of project insists that you look backwards. Of course, yeah. Over a lot of painful stuff as well, man. Like, I mean, was it a cathartic process or was it kind of just hellish and brutal? Because you really, like, you lay it all bare, man. You know, I, I, uh, I hadn't really turned over those rocks before. I hadn't thought about any of that stuff. And a lot of that, you know, those memories came back to me in the process of writing it. And, it, you know, I'm not going to lie and say it was cathartic because it wasn't. It was pretty brutal and hellish. Um, I wouldn't want to do it again. But like he said, you know, if I wanted to make something that was anything other than just a crappy rock biography, I would have to find a level of honesty that I would probably be uncomfortable with. And he said, just just write, you know, take one in, you know, one of the millions of stories that you have and, and write a prologue. And I'll tell you whether or not, yeah, I think you can do this. And so I wrote a prologue, which is exactly like it is in the book. And he just wrote back and said, you're doing it. (laughs) Amazing. What a guy, man. What a beautiful spirit. Absolutely. Um, And for the first, you know, few chapters, I was sending them to him. And he was, you know, basically functioning like an editor. You know, telling me, you know, this works, this doesn't. Try and reword this. Stuff that an editor does. And then, of course, uh, you know, pretty uh, not long into that process is when he took his life, which was a shock. And, you know, still it's hard to wrap my head around. But then I felt... I felt two things. I felt like I didn't want to continue it, but then I felt like I I was obligated to. I don't know why, but... Yeah, no, that makes sense. You want to see the project through because that's what he would have wanted. Yeah, so that's that's what I did. But it was uh, not happy work by any stretch of the imagination. No, I can imagine. I can imagine, man. And like I said, you, you really lay it all on the... The, car, the cards on the table, um, you know, warts and all is, is kind of the understatement of the year <laughs> with your book, man. It's it's quite unlike anything I've read. Uh, it's almost more like a Bukowski book than, than a musician's autobiography. And I mean that as a huge compliment because I love his work. Well, I, I take that as a compliment. Um, yeah, you know, I just I found that level of honesty that I was uncomfortable with. and and lived in that space how long did it take you how long were you were you just in that headspace getting that project you know from inception to to end how long was that um probably over the span of five months i got it done oh so you went at it pretty fast then 
Yeah, I, t- I was trying desperately to get it done, so I you know, didn't have to think about it anymore. The, uh, the publisher told me that I was the first guy to turn, turn it in two months early that they'd ever had. You're like, just take it off my hands. <laughs> yeah, I just I didn't want to be in that uh, space any longer. So I was working, you know, sometimes 12, 14, 16 hours a day. And uh, yeah, it, was, it was quite brutal. There's although there's a lot of tragedy and, and heartache and, and horrible stuff in there, there's also real humor. And I mean, is that just are you that kind of guy that uses a sense of humor to try and get through the bad stuff in life? Because even in its most really downbeat moments, there's still this, I don't know, almost unrelating, unrelenting, sorry, uh, you know, strength in the face of adversity. And you're kind of. You know, almost saying it some of the things with with half a smile some of the time, if that makes sense. Like, there's definitely a sense of character that comes through on the pages as well. Is humour an important tool for you uh, in coping and dealing with, you know, some of life's more darker days? Yeah, I'm somebody who you know tries to tries to look at the humour and things, and because it was such a dour story. You know, I specifically looked for the uh, for the humor when I could find it, and you know, of course, a lot of that involved me hurting myself. <laughs> but that's that's always where the best humor is. <laughs> There's a couple of cats I'd love to talk to you about. Uh, I was talking to Davey about one of them yesterday, Jeff Pierce from the Gun Club. Uh, you talk a lot about the Gun Club and also the Germs and Derby Crash and those two guys as sort of early influential figures on your developing, you know, songwriting skills and, and, and approach to the craft and outlook. Uh, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your connection, first of all, with Jeffrey and how important the Gun Club were as a band to you and how important he was as a, you know, a songwriter and an individual to you. Well, he was hugely uh, important. It was, you know, within like the first minute of the first Gun Club record of hearing it that I just instantly thought that I wanted be in a band and I had never thought about that before but something about it made me think I want to do this too and then I was just a you know huge fan of those first uh, four records and then by chance ended up meeting them in Los Angeles and he gave me his number in London and I was there like a month later and it turned out I was just staying like five minutes from where he lived and we just ended up hanging out for that entire trip. And, you know, we remained close friends until he passed away. Incredible band, aren't they? And and one of those bands that I think really influenced a lot more groups than perhaps the general public would be aware of. You know, people like yourself, obviously Queens of the Stone Age, there's a lot of these bands that have now gone on to become, you know, bigger than the Gun Club, but would probably not be the bands that they are. Uh, were it not for the influence of, of that group. Definitely. I mean, I think somebody said about the Velvet Underground that they only sold 500 records when they first came out, but all, everyone who bought a record started the band. Yeah. Yeah, exactly like and that. I know that the Gun Club was, you know, influential on 
bands like 16 horsepower, white stripes. Um, yeah, definitely myself. I mean, it's a long, long list of, of people who were inspired by their music and use that inspiration to, to want to play their own music. And Darby as well was one of those guys who, you know, he shone very brightly for a very short space of time. Obviously that early Hollywood punk scene was kind of very nihilistic and destructive by its nature, but he kind of had this, this poetic side to him, didn't he, with his lyrics, which you talk about in the book and really sort of shine a light on him as a, a creative force. And obviously the tragedy, I guess, with him is that he died of an... Was it an intentional overdose? Am I correct in thinking that? Uh, I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I never met him, obviously. And, um, you know, I was still living in eastern Washington when I, when I first heard the germs. But, uh, you know, all I really knew about him was stuff there, other people, and, and just, you know, like the documentary, Decline of Western Civilization, which me and the, the guys in that Screaming Trees used to watch all the time. You know, we were we were uh, sort of fascinated with the germs. And he passed away the day before John Lennon. I didn't realize that. And I, obviously that, you know, massively eclipsed his passing. Uh, and I guess he kind of became a footnote almost, didn't he? Which is, which is a real shame because, again, one of those dudes that just super unique and influential and special. And would have been amazing yeah. to have seen them. My God. Yeah. Definitely. What do you think it was about Seattle, Mark, that, um, you know, just gave birth to so many amazing singers? It's kind of wild, isn't it, that, you know, this provincial town, not one of what you would think like the major creative hotspots and musical cities, uh, and, you know, out of there came the likes of yourself, Kurt, Lane, Cornell, Sean Smith, Andrew Wood. Um, I mean, what was going on? Was there something in the water? Was there, was there something in the air? Did you feel like something special was happening there at the time? I know in you know the years that have gone since, you've actively tried to sort of distance yourself from that scene, but you obviously were there and, and knew all those guys and saw that creative bubble emerging. Um, what was it like in that time, being around so many amazing, creative, wonderful singers that just defined an entire generation? It's mad. Did you know that at the time something special was going on before it all blew up? Um, yeah, I mean, it was hard not to notice that there were a lot of great bands, a lot of great singers. Um, I think that, uh, Sub Pop had a lot to do with, you know, what happened with Seattle. Um, the genesis of it was, you know, heavily linked to those guys, but nobody could have predicted you know, sort of like the mainstream success of so many bands, you know, Soundgarden, House of Chains, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, all of them, you know, going to the top of the billboard charts worldwide. That's kind of unheard of, I think. You know, there's a lot of great music cities, Manchester, um, you know, cities that aren't, aren't huge aren't the, uh, you know, major metropolises. But uh, I think that it was the, the mainstream success of those bands that was sort of unprecedented. 
what do you think was more destructive? Because obviously so many of those people are now gone. Um, do you think it was the fame and the pressure of that or, or the drugs or both? I couldn't really say, you know, um, obviously drugs took a major toll on some of my good friends. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, there's been a lot of, a lot of death out of that scene. Um, as far as the fame goes, I mean, I've known some, some guys who are, you know, in, in the biggest bands in the world and I've never seen, uh, fame do anybody any favors. Yeah. That's for sure. But then again, there's plenty of guys that, you know, handle it well and live a long life. Uh, you just you just never know. Who have you met on your travels that's the most famous, that handles it the best and seems all but unfazed by it? Because it is, it's a crazy intoxicating beast, isn't it? But I know there are people out there that somehow seem to just sort of cope with it and brush it off almost. Have you met any people like that on your travels that, and you kind of just are amazed by how down to earth they are considering their stardom. Oh yeah, you know. I mean, I'm good friends with Doc McKagan and the Guns guys, and they're you know as down to earth as you'd ever want to meet. But of course, they had their trials and have gone through their you know painful times to get where they're at. Um, John Paul Jones comes to mind as down to earth and uh, as uh, just amazing human as you'd ever want to meet and a gigantic rock star, you know, an icon. He comes to mind. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of those those guys who eat beans on toast, as it were. <laughs> well, it must be wild for you, like as you know somebody who's been in the game so long and and to have sort of worked with so many people and so many amazing people and even your most recent record like john paul jones is on that and it must still be a bit of a trip right even now to to kind of go fucking hell i've got jpj on my record does that still like wow wow you out absolutely you know how could it not i'm uh at, at the at the heart of things, I'm I'm just a music fan. I think that's why, you know, most guys start playing music is because they love music, and you know, listening to rock music got me through, uh, you know, my my teenage years, and still does. You know, it's a powerful and uh, healing thing. It's also you know, it was the music of like the Gun Club and other bands that I love that sort of validated my uh, my worldview and just the uh, the way I saw things. Yeah, man, especially in times like we're in now. I mean, music for so many people that I've been speaking to has been, in some cases, the only thing that's kept people on the the straight and narrow. You know, and it's been such a wild year. I think you really realize in times like these when socializing has been removed that, you know, the arts is, is really what, you know, enriches so many of our lives, whether it is music or comedy or cinema or it's, I mean, we'd be lost without it, wouldn't we? That's for sure. 
absolutely. I think that the shame of this, you know, not only in you know music circles, but just in in general, so many people losing their jobs, losing their outlet to make a living. Um, you know, that's really hit uh, hit the music world pretty hard because you know guys like myself and so many others really uh, you know our bread is buttered uh, due to being able to play live shows and when that's removed you're shit out of luck you know record sales all that stuff was removed with the culture change of streaming but now that now that we're not allowed to uh, to go out and play shows, it's you know taking a hit. Yeah, I guess with with your book, you would have originally intended to have gone out on the road with the record and the book and have been pushing that. But I mean, you've never really done something like that before. But did you find that this pandemic thing affected the book sales, or did you actually find that because people are locked in and they were reading more, it, it did sort of what you'd hoped it would do? Because it must have been a shame for you to put all that work in and then have the world shut down, as so many people obviously uh, have had as well. But I guess when you have a book, at least, you don't need to be on the road to, to push that. But did you find still that what's going on did sort of impact? Well, obviously, it would have impacted your touring plans, but did it hit you hard? Uh, you know, I don't know about the book sales and all that. It could have, you know, could be could have been a positive thing, like you said. People staying in, reading. I don't really know because I didn't really pay attention to it. Um, I know it was a bestseller in in your country, fucking, but fucking I. <laughs> but other than that, I don't. I don't really not really aware. We had plans to go out. I mean, this is why we made the record to go to go out and do these shows where, you know. Bit of Q and A with the moderator, and then you know with the audience, and then played the record. Yep. Obviously, that didn't. Um, <clears throat> I think we had one show booked, and that was Barbican, and then of course, you know, it all the whole world went crazy. But um, so it, you know, it definitely had an impact on my my. Uh, immediate plans after the release of it but <clears throat> i don't really know um you know how it how it worked uh, with the sales or any of that strange say strangely enough i i read duff's book right before yours um just because i'd never read it and i was intrigued to read it so I read Duff's book, love that, read your book, love that. And then right at the end of your book, Duff's kind of like the white knight figure that rides into the rescue, isn't he? And it was it was just a really beautiful, strange coincidence. But I wonder if you could talk a bit about Duff and and, and how he kind of came in and when he came in and, and how he, you know, sort of helped get you back on track, as it were. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was living in half the house for almost a year and right before I had to leave I came home from work one day I was doing um, demolition in East Los Angeles you know knocking down old buildings and um, I came home from work and he was standing on the porch he had heard that uh, that I was living there he goes 
you know, I'd heard about my situation from somebody and I uh, went for a ride with him in his car and played me some music he was working on and, you know, we just immediately hit it off. And, uh, I don't know, within a couple months of knowing him, he, uh, he said, why don't you, why don't you stay in, you know, at the time he had a lot of properties, um, you know, several different houses and such. And he, uh, you know, he said he needed somebody to, to watch his properties, but <laughs> I'm, I'm almost certain he was just, uh, doing me a favor, obviously. And uh, that started, I don't know, two or three years of living at his places and functioning, as he said, as a caretaker. But, you know, it was just the start of uh, a friendship, which, you know, is uh, just as strong today as it was 20 years ago. He's an amazing guy. Um you know, obviously been really important to me personally, but he is everybody who knows him, you know, he's just, uh, just a really supportive and caring guy who happens to be, you know, in this gigantic rock band. But, um, you know, I'm pretty sure he would still be the way he is if he was working at Black Angus, <laughs> like he, and living in his car, like he was when he started Guns N' Roses. Well, there's that Seattle connection as well with Duff, isn't there? And he's obviously from that punk rock background as well. And yeah, as you say, what a caring, sweet, real dude. Like, what a real character right there. Yeah. I mean, it's him and his entire family are just some of the greatest people ever. Can we talk about Kurt? Sure. I just wanted to sort of, you know, hear some of your memories of, of time spent with him because it's, it's quite a, a beautiful story in the book, how you talk about there was a kind of a, a mutual, you know, respect that flowed back and forth between you two. And I guess he, in some ways, looked up to you a bit like a sort of big brother figure because you were a bit older and you'd kind of already done quite a bit by the time he met you. Um, how do you meet and, and how does that, creative relationship and, and personal friendship evolve over the times that you spent together? Well, I was, uh, I was good friends with Dylan Carlson, who was Kurt's best friend. And I was still living in my hometown. And uh, Dylan gave me a call and asked me if I would go down to the uh, public library that week and, and see his friend's band said his friend was a big fan of mine and that it would, uh, you know, make his day. And I didn't know it at the time, but it was Nirvana that was playing and Kurt was who he was talking about. And right off the bat, the show got cut short because, you know, typical small town curfew shit. But the three or four songs that I saw completely you know, blew me away and I realized throughout the bat I was looking at something and hearing something that was really, really special because they had it from the drop, you know. So that was evident from the beginning. They were just on fire and you could see there was something happening. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it was just 
completely apparent to me that he was destined for greatness right from the get-go. But, you know, again, nobody could have ever predicted just how, you know, huge and influential he would be. Um, That's sort of outside the realm. That's kind of uh, uncharted territory as far as, you know, my experience and the experience of people that I knew back then. But uh, I definitely knew that he was uh, onto something that was untouchable. And he was just, you know, uh, really, again, he was one of those people who, through time, ended up being you know, really supportive of me and of the music I was making, but he, he, uh, he was just, uh, you know, just a kind of kind, really kind, gentle, um, smart as fuck, really funny, just, uh, you know, one of those magic people. The Lead Belly cover, which appears on the Nirvana Unplugged album, obviously, you know, that was that was your cover first on your debut solo album, The Winding Sheet, which a lot of people obviously, I don't think, realised. Hopefully, you know, now they will once the, the book's out there and they're reading it and realising. But, I mean, the story which which stands to mind is when he says to you, we're going to do this Unplugged record, we want to do this cover, will you come on and, and be on it? And, and for for whatever reason, you, you kind of turn down the offer, don't you? Um uh, why was that, do you think? Uh, I felt like it was, you know, sort of inappropriate charity. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the, the Screaming Trees had had, I think, sort of a minor hit in the States at that time. But, you know, compared to Nirvana, we were still completely unknown. And I just felt like it would be awkward to come on and, and do this song with him. I mean, he had asked me to do it live with him a few times, but I had always uh, declined. And, uh, you know, it was, it was basically just because I felt like I would feel awkward doing it. Um, and I would probably still feel it that way. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's not true. I've I've actually opened up to that kind of stuff uh, in my old age, but at the time, it just felt like, like I said, an appropriate charity. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess they they had the Meat Puppet guys out as well, didn't they? And they were obviously trying to showcase some of the bands and artists that had you know inspired them. And I guess they just sort of asked for your blessing then and said, "Can we just kind of do the cover?" pretty much straight down the line the way you do it. And, and and that's what went down, right? Well, he didn't ask me if it was okay. He just said he was going to do it. Right. <laughs> and, uh, it's happening either way. <laughs> of course, I was, uh, you know, thrilled that he was doing the song. It was one that we both liked a lot, obviously. And, uh, you know, I think that version that he ended up doing was the definitive version of that song. And it's been done a million times by a lot of different people, but nobody could touch his version. I love it. That's the way you feel. You think it's that strong. That's awesome. Absolutely. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's one story in the book as well uh, on the sort of subject of, you know, a missed moment. I mean, I don't know how you feel about this one now, but obviously it is what it is. But the David O. Russell story, um, he, he, he is, is it the hearing whiskey for the Holy Ghost? record is that is that the one that he heard and decided man i want to get this guy to score my first film and so he was trying to get in touch with you to ask if you do the music to spanking the monkey david russell yeah he actually did get in touch with me and i had a conversation with him on the phone and they sent me the script and not having had a lot of experience reading scripts i was sort of like lost but I came upon something in the script that I thought was disturbing. And, but more than that, it was the fact that he wanted me to go to the Northeast and, uh, you know, hang out in Massachusetts in the wintertime. That that's really what, what put me off. And then I just ignored all his calls after that. And he, (laughs) which was, you know, really bad childish behavior, but, that was me back then, and uh, he got uh, morphine to uh, put the music in the film, and that sort of put them on the map. Yeah, and you, you look at the films that he went on to do, you so many great movies, The Fighter, Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle, and he didn't he say as well, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be making a lot of films, like, I'm going to be a successful filmmaker, and I'm going to get you to do all my work, like, I'm going to kind of bring you with me as my guy, was that kind of how he laid it out? That's what he indeed said. He said, he said, this might seem crazy, but this is just the beginning, and if you, uh, you let me do the easy songs, I'm going to take you along with me. <laughs> <laughs> what could have been hey <laughs> i guess you yeah. can't you can't really think too long on stuff like that because it'll drive you crazy won't it and, and obviously there's been a couple of moments like that in your life obviously you'd have had to as you say like unturn those stones again and go back but are you at peace with all of those decisions or lack thereof 
that that happened during those you know turbulent years have you just accepted that that's the way it went down and you're happy with where you're at now like have you found have you managed to find peace in more recent years oh yeah i've found peace over that stuff a long long time ago so you know there's nothing you can do about the past you can only you can only uh you know, try not to make the same mistakes today, but you know that that kind of shit is par for the course. At least it has been in my experience. You know, turning down shit that that could have been great. <laughs> <laughs> I love the story about when you and Josh uh, almost get into. Well, you do get into a bit of a scrape, and and he's there with you, and he's like, "Don't fucking put me in a position like that again." That's sort of early on in your friendship when he's playing with the trees, and you take him on a pickup to try and score. Uh, <laughs> I love that, you know, after all these years, you guys are still pals after something like that early on as well. Like, um, how, what's the nature of that friendship there again? How does that sort of begin and evolve and, and unravel over time? Cause it's a special, unique working and personal relationship, right? Uh, definitely. But you know, the, the musical aspect of it is, really secondary it starts with our friendship and the music is sort of an afterthought but uh you know i didn't i didn't know him when he joined the band he knew uh, van connor our bass player and they told me that he had been in caius on like their records so i was like yeah go ahead and hire him um and then he kind of became my saving grace the last few years of the trees. Yeah. Because none of us were, you know, friendly with each other any longer. And it was a lot of bad blood. And he became, you know, my, my spirit animal. <laughs> he, uh, you know, was, was interested in, in doing more than just playing rhythm guitar in, in our crappy band. And again, it was one of those situations where I knew he was dumbing down to do this thing. And I also knew because he told me that he was just doing it so that he could, you know, play with me. Love and, it. Uh, so I, you know, I took that to heart and have always enjoyed, you know, the times that we've worked together and the, you know, music that we've written together. Had a lot of laughs. He's uh, one of the funniest people ever, one of the smartest people, one of the most talented people. And uh, so I've, uh, I've enjoyed that friendship through the years. I was chatting to Davey yesterday about the Rated R record and just what a game changer that album is. Uh, it was so different to anything around at that time. It really shook up, I think, like heavier music, quote unquote, and what that could be and what it could do. Um, did you know when he was working on that record and you're obviously working on it with him, could you tell that record was going to be a game changer in the creation stages? Definitely. Again, it was one of those situations where you know, there was a, an electricity in the studio because everybody knew that we were working on something 
that was really special. Um, I mean, I thought that the first Queens record was great, and he had asked me to be, you know, be singer in the band. But, you know, I told him that obviously those songs were meant for him to sing, and at the time I was uh, I was institutionalized anyway. I couldn't uh, couldn't work on it, so um, that became a moot point. But during the making of the second record. I think everybody knew, you know, there there was an excitement for sure. And Nick as well. I love Nick so much. I had him on the show very, very early on. He was like one of the first guests and we spent a night together in Birmingham just drinking Jack, smoking cigarettes. And, you know, he, he obviously has a certain reputation as being like this wild man, um, which undoubtedly I'm sure he is. But there's also this real, like, sweet, considered dude isn't there inside that animal is is like a real heart of gold and what a creative force he is as well absolutely i mean nick is one of the most loyal friends that anybody could ever want to have uh, he's a beautiful soul i i love him you know to death i don't know if you've heard the new mondo record I, I haven't not, no uh, it's it's brilliant I think it's a masterpiece. Um, definitely check that out. It's uh, it's so Nick, you know. It's, <laughs> it's like it's really funny and really powerful, and there's even those sensitive moments. Because yeah, like you said, there's a sensitivity to him as well that people wouldn't expect. But when you get to know him, he's just a really beautiful person. What a band and what a lineup as well. And obviously, as you go into Songs for the Deaf, you get Dave on drums as well. Troy comes in on guitar. And I mean, at that point in time, I always look to that lineup and that record as just like the fucking, you know, almost like the five horsemen of the apocalypse. Like it must have been wild and so much fun touring the world. You like gang of guys rolling up to festivals. And I mean, it must have, people must have looked at you guys every time you walk past, like, fucking hell, that's a band. That's what a band looks like. What's your memories of that time being on the road with those dudes, making that Songs for the Deaf record and, and taking those songs to the people all over the world as well? Was it a special time in your life? Yeah, it was kind of just like you just described. There was, uh, you know, undeniable power to that lineup and to that music. And, uh, you know, we knew it. <laughs> But as you said, we came rolling up to festivals. It was, uh, you know, it was like a gang mentality. And uh, some of the best times I've ever had. Some of the, uh, you know, most powerful music I've ever been part of. Really special time, for sure. Any tour or festival stories come to mind from that time that you... <laughs> that you remember as being funny or enjoyable or, you know, mischievous? <laughs> oh, God. I mean, that was a daily occurrence. It was, uh, you know, off the stage, it was mayhem 24-7. But, you know, on stage, it was, it was always harness and, uh, you know, really powerful. And you could feel it. I don't know if you've seen, but next year, if it goes ahead, if the world's back in, you know, gigging, 
business. Uh, Queens of the Stone Age are going to be playing Reading Festival on the same day, co-headlining with uh, with your pal Liam Gallagher. <laughs> no, I didn't hear that. <laughs> yeah, co-headliners. I mean, that's been one of the the things for me in lockdown that's entertained me has been your your back and forth on Twitter with Liam. Um, <laughs> has, has that been keeping you amused as well? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was it was uh, gave me a laugh for a few minutes. <laughs> Uh, if people haven't read the book, obviously there's a story in there with, with yourself and Liam on tour and it all sort of stems from there. But it's funny, man. Like I was going to ask you, other than Liam, has there been a, any other people that have re- read the book or heard about a story in the book and been like, oh, fucking hell, dude, why did you tell that one? And like called you up or taken issue with, with any of the the intimate details shared? Has anybody reached out to you in that way, either, you know, aggressively or in a friendly way and been like, come on, man. <laughs> Uh, there's been a few who were unhappy about it, but the people that I didn't run the story by them were people that I didn't give a fuck what they thought. Right, right. Um, everybody who I did care about that I, you know, remained friendly with or weren't fuckheads. Um, I re- and I was telling something personal about them that they might not want out there. I ran it by them. And everybody that I ran shit by said it was cool you know from nick cave to l7 to uh you know josh everybody that uh that i gave a damn about they were all cool with uh with the stories that i told the people who i didn't care were unhappy about it as they should be anybody Anybody more unhappy than Liam? I don't know how unhappy he is. Uh, <laughs> although he took the, the, pretty much the brunt of uh, <laughs> an entire chapter. But, you know, uh, other than my, uh, you know, thoughts on <laughs> on him, other than, you know, his actual behavior, he shouldn't have been a prick if he didn't want somebody to be right about it got to deal with the consequences did you did you talk to jerry cantrell about him nicking your porn stash and has he since admitted to whether he did that or not and returned said items <laughs> he's never admitted it he didn't admit it like a week after it happened he's never admitted it he was totally fine with me telling the story but he refuses to ever admit it <laughs> <laughs> I love it. He's taking that one to the grave then. <laughs> Absolutely. There were there were other stories involving Jerry and myself that that I couldn't have told and Jerry was like, Man, why didn't you tell that other story? I was like, dude, because neither one of us would ever be able to show our face in public again if I told the other stories. <laughs> I love Jerry. He seems like a great dude. I've never met him, but he seems like a great dude. And from the, his appearances in your book, he seems like a real character. <laughs> he, he is, and you know, one of a kind of talent as well. Uh, I'd love to know a little bit about your bond with Lane as well, and what he was like. And I, I love the stories in the book where you're talking about traveling around Europe with him, and just watching him on stage every night, like killing it, no matter what state he was in off the stage. He said, like, whenever it came time to showtime, he was just 
on fire. Um, tell me about that dude, what he was like as a, a human and about your thoughts and feelings and friendship with him. Well, you know, he was my best friend and, uh, we had a bond that was, um, you know, I think more like brothers probably than, than friends, but he was, um, a magical personality. Uh, I think I said it before. It was kind of like he almost wasn't of this earth without sounding too uh, galactic or weird. But he was uh, one of a kind. Um, never met anyone like him before or since. Ultra intelligent. Um, just uh, with, the, with the most hilarious, mischievous sense of humor. And then, you know, was like the most powerful singer that I'd ever seen or heard. There was something about his voice that just could knock down buildings. And those tours must have been just so amazing to witness, like as as you said in the book, like every night, just pretty... Well, they, they were, you know. I mean, yeah, there was such a power to what those guys did that uh, it was almost like embarrassing to have to get up on the same stage with them because they were uh, undeniably great and to this day still my favorite band from that era and from that city I uh, love their music always will Cornell worked with you on the Uncle Anesthesia Screaming Trees record, right? He helped Terry Date produce that album. Um, again, another one, man. Like, it's just such a fucking shame. All those dudes were so great and so talented. And obviously just dealing with, you know, really intense, dark forces. What was your experiences with Chris over the years? And did his, if you don't mind me asking, did his death come as a a real shock because you sort of would have assumed, I guess, from the outside looking in that he'd made it through those, those, you know, grunge casualties and he'd survived and then it wasn't to be. Yeah. I mean, I didn't see that one coming, but in retrospect, when I thought about, you know, the years of knowing him, he was always like a real, you know, he had a, he had a, uh, a darkness and sadness to him. He was a real lone wolf. Um, that, uh, you know, looking back on it, thinking about that aspect of his personality, it wasn't so shocking. But at the time, it was, you know, that was the, that one blindsided me. Didn't see it coming. And of course, you know, success doesn't ever equate happiness for anybody. I've known so many guys that were at the top of their game that have decided to, to you know, take that step. And uh, it's always, it's always a fucking shock, and it's always a shame. But it's. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's more of a, a 
shame when, when people with children do that. Um, that always makes me <clears throat> adds a, an element of sadness to everything. But really, uh, you know, it hurts. Are you pals with Eddie Vedder? It seems like you and him are kind of the last two standing from that time. Um, you know, I've only met Eddie a couple of times. I'm, I'm friends with Mike McCready. Yep. Uh, lead guitar player in Pearl Jam. But the rest of those guys, I've never really known them. Uh, I know Matt Cameron, who plays drums with those guys now, obviously from Soundgarden. And, uh, I've known a few of their previous drummers. Jack Irons plays on a lot of my records. He's an amazing drummer. I played with those guys. But yeah, you know, I've just, weirdly enough, I've only been around Eddie maybe once, twice. Like once was in an airport. Friendly, you know, but I can't really say I know him at all. You mentioned Jack Irons there, who obviously, uh, you know, as you said, plays on your records, has done a lot of work over the years with your good friend, Alan Johannes as well. Um, you just reminded me, so I shouldn't laugh, but it is wild. Um, the the story in your book with Anthony Kiedis' dad in Michigan, did he know about that story before the book? And have you spoke to him since the book came out, if he didn't, and uh, <laughs> and got his thoughts on that? Because that sounds like a wild night with his dad right there. Yeah, um, of course I didn't know it was his dad until I went to use the restroom. Um, I have no idea if, if uh, Kiedis knows about it or has read it. He's not a friend of mine. I've done one tour with those guys, um, and he was friendly enough. But I can't say I know him either. Um, but you went into but, his dad's bathroom and there was pictures of, of a young Kiedis in there and you were like what the fuck <laughs> that must have yeah, been was, such a surreal penny drop moment and you just hightailed it out of there soon afterwards right yeah I mean that was already an uncomfortable situation but that was I just found that to be pretty weird you know like the, the walls were covered with photos of him and it was a tiny closet sized bathroom and out in the other room, there was a lot of pictures of my host, his dad, you know, in his own house, which that's always a little weird anyway. But I just thought, fuck, this is where you chose to put all the photos of your kid. You know what I mean? So bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, it was a little weird. And as you say in the book, you know, you're no stranger to weird situations. In fact, back then, you usually ran towards them and thrived off them. But you were like, even this was just too weird for me. <laughs> Yeah, there was an element of uh, bizarro to that that I couldn't uh, abide with. There's some wild stories about UK as well, and some of your like you know extreme adventures with getting from A to B and and trying to you know pick up and score. And I mean, obviously now you're saying at the start of our conversation the UK is pretty much like your second home it's where a lot of your musical outings take place and it was wild reading about you know these nights in Sheffield and waiting for the the night bus to take to the airport from London and all these kind of things like familiar familiar stories for me you know who's 
you know, not on heroin, but certainly on fucking coke and booze and all of that, been, you know, on these these similar kind of jaunts where you just feel like you could sleep for a million years at the end of them. And I mean, it's a miracle to me, and I'm sure it is to you, Mark, that you're you're still alive. Do you feel like that? Like after everything you've been through, it's like sometimes you kind of just look back, you must have looked back and think it's a fucking miracle that I'm here. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I'm not somebody who really spends a lot of time looking back. I mean, I did for the book, but <clears throat> like some of the things that you're talking about are in the book. I've already forgotten that they were in the book. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> I'm, I'm somebody who pretty much like stays in the here and now. I try not to get too far ahead, and I definitely don't look behind me too much. But... uh yeah, I mean, if you if you put the the totality of anybody's experience together, it's probably a miracle that anybody's around. Yeah, especially this year. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, somebody said you either get old or you don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm perfectly happy to get old. Do you consider yourself lucky? Yeah, extremely lucky. I'm probably the luckiest guy I've ever known. Lucky that anybody's ever wanted to listen to my music. Lucky that I'm, you know, talking to anybody about it. Um, lucky that that uh, I've been able to thrive against uh, all of my own attempts to, to not have that happen. <laughs> yep. And just all the amazing people that you've gotten to, to know and spend time with and work with and create with, it's it's quite the list, isn't it? And obviously that's a testament to, you know, you'd obviously never probably say this because you strike me as someone who's very humble, but it has to be something to do with your talent and, and what you have to bring to the table that makes all these people want to be around you and work with you. And it's it must feel like a blessed existence to have gotten to do all the things that you've gotten to do definitely does um you know i mean it when i think about it it's probably not due to my winning personality but um <laughs> you know it's uh it's been uh it's been a uh a, definitely a blessed existence and are you going to save Christmas or what? What's the deal? So Dark Mark does Christmas twenty twenty. I'd love to. I'd I'd love to hear all about this because you know this is just I think the year. That, if ever there was a year for a Lanigan Christmas record, twenty twenty is it? Uh, tell me about the the genesis of this project all those years ago and and how you've sort of updated it and brought it forward and and completed it and and, and what the deal is like, what the songs are like, and what we can expect. Um. Well, I think probably in 2012, 20, yeah, it was 2012, I had a couple of Christmas shows booked, one in the Netherlands, one in Belgium. And at the time, I was you know, flogging bootleg CDs at my shows. And I wanted something uh, special for these two shows. And me and Alan got together, Alan Johannes, uh, one afternoon and just looked for like the darkest Christmas songs we could find and recorded <laughs> six of them in an afternoon. 
and uh, included in there was a song by Rocky Erickson, which isn't really a Christmas song, but he mentions Christmas in it. So I was like, yes, that counts. <laughs> but um, yeah, we had some CDs made, and then uh, over the years, I started getting pressed on vinyl. And it's definitely been my biggest seller at the merch stand throughout the years. Um, I've had it pressed a bunch of times, and sold out of them. But uh, Rough Trade contacted me and asked me if I wanted to make an actual album for release this year. And I was like, sure, because I had thought about doing that a bunch of times. Um, you know, having it made official but uh, I never did because the honest truth is I make more out of it <laughs> yeah yeah than I would uh, you know selling it with the record company but it's been out for so long that uh, I was like sure and the thing that really attracted me to it was that they specifically asked me to do this song called In the Bleak Midwinter, which is an old Irish uh, Christmas hymn. And the irony of that is I heard that song for the first time a week after I recorded the Christmas, the original Christmas record. And I thought to myself, fuck, why didn't I do that? Why hadn't I heard the song? Because it's really dark and great. And, uh, I had always looked at it as a missed opportunity. And then they offered that opportunity back to me specifically. So, uh, yeah, it, it became a, a no-brainer. And then I wrote a couple of quote-unquote Christmas songs to go with it. And uh, did an Everly Brothers tune. Amazing. Which called Christmas Eve will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> yeah, Dark Mark does Christmas 2020. This sounds like the Christmas record the world needs. I can't wait. I can't wait. Dude. And what's the deal with the, the project with Joe? When's that going to see release? Do you know yet? I think Joe said next spring. Killer. You know, it's all finished. Um, just need to uh, get it out there. Well, I hope you both come over here when when shows are a thing again, and and do it do a tour of Dark Mark and Skeleton Joe in the UK. I'd like I to see that. that. I would love just any opportunity to play. I'm sure everybody would who uh, not been able to play music, and you know the, the punters, everybody's fucking. You know, wanting to get out and see music live, hang out, you know, that's uh, part of the tragedy of this thing, is just the social aspects of normal life have been removed. Yeah, and, and it's more than just a livelihood, isn't it, when, when you're entrenched in it, and I spend a lot of time on the road touring and DJing and hosting live Q&As, and you know, I'd say 50 to 60% of my life is spent on the road, and when you remove that experience, you also remove the, the social element, as you say, and it feels like a part of you has been taken away, doesn't it? It sucks. It really does. I mean, 
<clears throat> here in Ireland, we just went to uh, level five, which is, you know, basically just grocery stores are open. Read a lot. Yeah. And, uh, you can't travel further than five kilometers from where you live. You can't hang out in anybody's house. Like, there's no visiting your friends. There's no doing anything, you know. So my wife and I are just uh, here in the house. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> but we're using the time to make music, which is uh, all you can do. Yeah, man. Well, listen, dude, uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed our time together, and I really appreciate you taking the time out to, to come on the show and have a chat. And thank you for all the great music over the years. Congratulations on the book as well. Um, I know it must have been a, a bitch to write, but it's the... The, the end product is worth the process uh, i absolutely adored it i think it's a fucking incredible book and uh yeah looking ahead i look forward to hearing the record with joe the christmas songs and and hopefully in the new year getting together in the world and and meeting up in person at one of your shows and and having a chat in real life hopefully next year that'd be great and uh, i've enjoyed it as well take care Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.